invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to that Micah chapter 7 passage, if you would, please. In the Louvre in Paris, France, is on a wall that's cordoned off so you can't get too close to it, is the original painting by Michelangelo, Mona Lisa. It is certainly one of a kind. In the Tower of London, which I've had the opportunity to see myself in person, the crown jewels, which are dazzling and spectacular, they have been housed in the Tower of London for over 600 years, um, and there's nothing quite like them, I can assure you. On display in the Smithsonian Institute is the stunningly beautiful 45.5-carat pear-shaped Hope Diamond. It's estimated to be worth about $300 million, and there's only one Hope Diamond. If you're looking for the rare items that you hardly ever see in this life, in fact, maybe you didn't know they even existed, but there is a white peacock. You know, peacocks are known for all their colors. There's a peacock that's totally white. Everything about it is white. There's less than 20 of them in the world. There's albino alligators and albino humpback whales that are completely pristine white. Um, there's only a handful of them in the entire world. If you're a baseball collector, you probably are aware of the Honus Wagner card, which is the rarest of all cards. Um, it was made back in 1909, and it sold not too long ago for $3.12 million dollars. Or the incredibly rare double eagle gold coin, which are, again, only a few in existence. The last one sold a number of years ago for $7.9 million. All of that to say we all know across the globe, don't we? We all know the value of things that are rare, things that are one of a kind. And that's the very thought Micah introduces to us as he concludes his prophecy. He starts off in verse 18 with this question. Who is a God like you? And the rhetorical answer is, there is none. In fact, it's, not, it's very appropriate that Micah ends his prophecy this way because his very name, Micah, means who is like Yahweh. Micah wants Israel to know, and he wants us to know, that the God that we serve is incomparable. He is unparalleled. He is peerless. He is unequaled by anyone or anything. God is certainly, and it doesn't say it enough, he is one of a kind. There is no other God beside him. But we would be amiss to think that Micah is the only one who has ever shared this thought. In fact, the Old Testament is truly a catalog to the incomparability of God. Isaiah three times Chapter 40, verses 18 and 25, and also chapter 46 and verse 5 says, To whom when then will you liken me, God says? Who can compare with me? To whom will you think that I am equal to, he says. Psalm 40 and verse 5, David says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Moses adds his entry into this catalog. In Exodus 15, at the Red Sea crossing, he writes, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? If that wasn't enough, 
Solomon also puts an entry in there when he dedicates the temple to God. In 1 Kings 8.23, O Lord God of Israel, there is none like you. Asa had his back to the wall against an innumerable army that had no chance of beating on their own. And he cries out to God and says, O Lord, there is none like you to help. If you're backed up to the Red Sea with no place to go, if you are facing odds and situations in your life that you can't possibly figure out how you're going to handle this situation, that's the time we utter the words, Oh God, who is like you? There is no one like you. Even more personally, the psalmist writes in Psalm 35:10, Oh Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? You ever had a debt? You ever had finances? You ever been in a situation that there's absolutely no way you have power to exchange or change it? God says, call on me. There's no one. I can help in ways, I can do things in ways that nobody else can. If you are in the day of trouble, the psalmist says in 86.8, there's none like you among the gods. Because in the day of trouble, God can do and deliver in ways that no one else can. Jeremiah says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great. I mean, it's just, the catalog goes on and on and on. God is incomparable in his mighty deeds and his power. He's incomparable in his holiness and his ability to help people who are needy. He's incomparable in his greatness and his words and his actions and even his name, the scripture catalogs for us. But Micah's entry into this catalog is different than everyone else's. He doesn't talk about the things that we would normally think that God is incomparable with. He doesn't talk about his power or his might or his deeds, not even his ability to help in a certain way. But you know what Micah says? Micah says, who is a God like you? And you know what he wants to tell us? You know what another facet or feature of God's incomparability is? His ability to forgive sins. See, it's a big deal in the book of Micah. And if you listen this morning, you'll find out how big a deal it is in your life. Micah is a book that the bulk of it, if you read its entirety, is about how sinful, dreadfully sinful that Israel is. And as a result, God is coming on them with swift and severe judgment. See, I read the book in its entirety, and then you come to the end of it, and he talks about pardoning. But the vast majority of the book is about punishing. So I asked the question, and I want to pose it to you. How can God be a punishing God and a pardoning God at the same time? You know how? Because there is no God like him. He is matchless in holiness and in mercy. I read this week the Puritan Richard Sibbs he says this, God is matchless in mercy and peerless in pardoning. You know how he can do it? Because our God is incomparable when it comes to forgiveness. If you read the book, it's obvious by the end of it, especially by the text that I just read you this morning, that although they didn't see it at the time, and maybe you don't see it this morning, that your greatest problems are not what you think. See, Israel thought their greatest problems were the enemies and the foreign superpowers and their military superiority that might invade them and take them over. But see, they thought that their greatest problem, hear me, was something external to them. 
something that perhaps they could come up with a solution on their own and resolve. But they were wrong. Their greatest threat was something internal to them. You see, their greatest problem did not take the form of soldiers. It took the form of sins. And see, this morning, maybe you're here at church and you came here because you're in a day of trouble and you're facing calamities and you've got things in your life and things that you're facing. And you say, well, if I could come to church, maybe I could get God's favor and maybe he would step in and he would change this in my life and he would do this in my life and maybe he would give me this. And you think that if those things were solved, that your life would be peaceful and it would be great. And God says, you don't understand. Those things external to you, they're not your greatest problem. It's what's internal to you. It's your sins. As a believer, may I ask you this morning, what is your greatest obstacle to finding your complete joy in God? What is your greatest hindrance to spiritual growth? What is it that causes you in your life to doubt at times that you even have a relationship to God, it's your sin. See, your sin, if you let it this morning, if you don't get and grasp God's forgiveness, it can rob you of your satisfaction in God. It can steal your joy. It can... It can destroy your confidence and assurance in salvation. It can paralyze you and keep you from serving others and being used in ministry to have an impact on others' lives for eternity. So it is well worth our time this morning to look at this important and comparable God who, like no other, can forgive our sins. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to take a look at God's incomparable forgiveness And we're going to do that by looking at three things that God has done with your sins if you've repented and you know him. First being this, God pardons your sin. Verse 18 says, who is a God like you? Here it goes, pardoning iniquity. The word pardon means to remove guilt. It means literally to pick it up and carry it away. And the idea is that someone other than you is doing it. It's the same verb translated in Hebrew in Isaiah 53, 12, which talks about the Messiah. It says, he bore the sins of many. He bore them. He picked them up, and he took them away. One of my favorite books, and I have copies from three different centuries, is Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is bearing a huge burden on his back, and I have an illustrated copy, actually more than one, It shows how heavy and monstrous and huge the burden of his sin that he's carrying on his back. And he's unable to rid himself of it. He can't get rid of it. And the weight of his sin, felt this before yourself, is crushing him. And the crucial moment I would call the hinge moment in his history of his life is he comes to the cross. And here's here's what Pilgrim's Progress reads. He came to that place where stood a cross and a little bit below it, a sepulcher. As Christian came up to the cross, he looked up, and his burden was loosed off his shoulders, and the burden began to tumble, and so continued to do so, I love this part, until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and he saw it no more. That's what pardon is. It's the release of your burden, of your sin, the guilt of it, and it rolls down into the tomb where Jesus rose from the grave and conquered it, and you see it no more. Peter, in his epistle in the New Testament, says this, 
who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. Jesus took your sin. He pardoned it. He bore it upon himself. The writer Samuel Davies in his hymn says, who is a pardoning God like you who has such grace so rich and free? Perhaps you're here this morning and you know firsthand all about guilt. You carry it all the time. It's guilt that is there on a daily basis for ruining things, maybe ruining your family, ruining your marriage, ruining your career. Some of you are still carrying, and I'm not exaggerating when I say the crushing weight of immoral choices of the past. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years who many years afterwards still remember the time they had an abortion or they did some immoral act and they're still reliving it. What about the relentless, and I mean relentless, attacks of a conscience that is fully and continually aware of not only the sin, but the shame of it? You see, Jesus is the incomparable God, and he pardons all those who come to him with repentance. And by the way, pardon does not mean, in the text, that God turns a blind eye to the severity of your sins or the grievousness of its consequences. It's not God just slightly coming over it. In fact, I read this week, you know, there has been in the last number of decades since presidential pardons were allowed, and I didn't know this. I always hear at the end of somebody's presidency they pardon a few people. But there's been over 20,000 people pardoned. That's a lot. But here's what Wikipedia says. Here's what a presidential pardon is. It's a full pardon that reverses a criminal conviction, listen to this, as if it never happened. It's a removal of the guilt of what you have done. See, a presidential pardon doesn't mean you didn't do the things. It doesn't mean that they were bad. It means actually that you were a criminal and you were sent to jail for it. But you know what the pardon means? You were, that guilt was removed. See, it was you being exonerated and you might say, Pastor Walker, how is that possible with God? How can God remove my sin like that? Well, the next phrase explains it. In Hebrew, the first phrase, a pardon, pardoning God who pardons iniquity, is explained by the second one. How is he able to pardon us? Here's how the Bible says. He passes over transgression. That's what he does. For the remnant of his inheritance... See, if you're an Israelite and you're reading this text and you're thinking this, oh, here's how God pardons me. He passes over my transgression. Transgression means to rebel against someone's authority. See, we rebelled against God. He said, live this way, and we didn't do it. So the way he pardons that is he passes over it. And immediately, if you're Jewish, you would have thought of the Passover. You see, they deserve to be punished and smitten by the death angel in Egypt, just like the Egyptians did. But they weren't punished. And God passed over the houses in Israel because of one thing. There was blood applied to the door. See, the lamb was sacrificed, the blood was applied, and that was enough that God passed over their sin. See, God chose not to hold them accountable for their rebellion, for their transgression. Instead of punishing Israel, he punished 
the lamb by having it slaughtered. See, in case you're confused, I want to be clear. God did not pass over our sins like we pass over options of clothing choices at the mall. I was there the other day, and I was looking at some suits, and there were certain ones I didn't want. I just passed over them quickly. Why? Well, because they really didn't appeal to me. Um, They were the wrong color that I was looking for something else. Unfortunately, for my sake, some of them didn't fit. Um, And I passed over them. I didn't want them. Can I tell you, that's not how God passes over your sin. See, here's how God, God passes over your sin because he didn't pass over Jesus. So John the baptizer introduces Jesus in John's opening of his gospel, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Let me introduce you to this one. See, he's the Passover lamb. Paul picks up on that theme, and in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Christ, who is our Passover lamb. See, Jesus is the one. And see, for those of us this morning who have applied the blood of Jesus to the lintels and the doorposts of our hearts and lives, here's what he says. I pardon you. I pardon you. I've taken your guilt. I bore your sin. I've passed over it. Because I didn't pass over my son. You say, Pastor Walker, that is almost too good to be true. How is that possible? Why? Why in the world would a holy God, a God who is incomparable in holiness, why would he do something like that? Well, the Bible goes on to tell us, same verse. He does not retain his anger forever. Look at the text. He doesn't retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. I want you to know this morning that you are someone here maybe consumed in thinking about what your sin and what you've done. I want to tell you what God's consumed with. When it comes to forgiving and pardoning and passing over your sin, he is not half-hearted about it. God is not a God, which makes him incomparable. He does not hold on to grudges. He is not allowing to stew over your sin, repeated sin, by the way. And he doesn't become bitter about it. He doesn't bottle up his anger, although he has anger because he has to. He's righteous. See, he doesn't doesn't bottle it up so later on when you do one more time, he's going to explode at you. Sorry, like we do. See, God pardons and passes over our sin. Not Listen to this. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. Do you see what he says? He does not retain his anger forever. But, see the contrast? He delights. He delights in steadfast love. You know what that means? Remember, God is incomparably holy, so he's angry about it. He is angry about it, but he doesn't keep his anger forever. You know why? Because in God's incomparable heart, you know what he loves most? You know what he delights in most? Forgiveness. Oh, he... He delights in anger and righteousness because he's holy. It's part of who he is. But you know what? In his heart of hearts, he loves the most repentant sinners who come to him pleading for mercy, and he loves, he delights in giving them mercy. Ezekiel 18.32, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in it, declares the Lord. So this, he says, so turn to me. I don't want to. In my heart, I don't want to punish you. I don't want to pour out my wrath. I don't want to do that. Here's what I want to do. I want you to turn to me so that I can forgive you. 
So here's what God does with our sins. The first thing is he pardons it. The second thing God does with our sin is he defeats it. Notice in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. Note the words, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. The little phrase, trample underfoot, is a theme that is repeated Old Testament and New. It's the language the Bible uses to describe the comprehensive victory or defeat of one's enemies. It is a public display that you have conquered someone. In fact, there was actual a visual that goes with it. In Old Testament times, when you defeated an enemy, you would take their general, he would lay on the ground, and you would, he would put his foot on the neck of that defeated enemy. And when you put their neck underneath your feet, you were symbolizing that you had totally conquered them. Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 22 and 23 reads, All, and he put all things where? Under his feet. See, Jesus has won the victory. He has defeated all of your sins and mine, if you know him. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And let me tell you this, your enemies are not the job that you have and the boss who won't give you the promotion. You know what it is? Your greatest problems are the sins that you face, that you've committed in your life. And God says, listen, you know what Jesus has done? He has died and rose again. Why? Because he will put all of your enemies under his feet. He will reign. And the very last one, amen, after all the funerals, the last one that will be conquered is death. There'll be a day when that enemy will no longer be around and will defeat no one anymore. But the one I love the best, I'll have to confess, is Romans 16, 20. And I want you to know, all the verses but this one talk about Jesus putting his enemies under his feet. But this one is about you and me. The God of peace will soon crush Satan where? under your feet. You know what this morning, let me ring this bell, right? If you share in the victory of Jesus, in his cross, death, and resurrection, if you've repented of your sins and you know him, can I tell you this? All his enemies have been defeated and so have yours. See, you share in it. And I love it. I call it Jesus did some Satan stomping, right? He did some Satan stomping so you could do some sin stomping. He has put his head, his foot on the head and neck of the enemy of sin and Satan, and he has grounded into the dirt. He did some stomp. Now listen, Michigan is in the big, is in the tournament, and they won their two games. Michigan's doing some stomping. That's probably going to be their last one because they got lucky so far. But let me tell you, it wasn't lucky that Jesus stomped Satan. It wasn't lucky that he did. He gave his life. He has the power to stomp it. And let me tell you this, and because of him, so do you. Do you know what this morning, the weight of the burden of the sin you carry around, you don't have to, you know why? Jesus stomped it. You don't have to live in defeat. You don't have to live underneath the load anymore because Jesus has given us victory. Now I'm asking you this morning, with that kind of victory, shouldn't our holiness be greater 
Should knowing our sin has been stomped increase our generosity? If God has loved us and lavished his love to that much, shouldn't we be more loving to other people? Shouldn't our hunger for scripture be multiplied? Should not our prayer lives be more robust and consistent than they are? Why? Because our sin has been stomped. It's been defeated by the incomparable God. And if that isn't enough this morning to move you, can I tell you that I didn't leave out a line on purpose? I'm coming right back to it. Here's what he says. And God will... You see it? Again, again show compassion to you. Can I tell you, this wasn't the first rodeo of sin for Israel. They've done this over and over again. Over again. How about you this morning? God will forgive you if you repent. Listen, when you cuss and use foul language again. And again, and again. When you lust again and again, he will love you and forgive you if you repent. When you're lazy and selfish and other people suffer for it, again, he will love and forgive you. When you fail to witness and you know in your heart you should speak up and give the gospel and you fail to do it and you walk away and you feel awful, again, he loves and forgives you. Teenagers, when you rebel against your parents and you don't mind their authority and you think that you know better and you do it again and again and again, he loves and forgives those who come with humble, repentant hearts. So what has Jesus done with your sins if you know him? Ah, he's pardoned you. He's pardoned your sins. He's defeated your sins. Let me say it this way. He's carried them off, and then he carried them off, and then he took them and stomped them, but he's not done. He's not done. He wants you to know how great his forgiveness. Remember, it's incomparable. Who is a God like him? He's a God who carries them off. He's a God who stomps them into the ground and defeats them, and then lastly, he buries them. Verse number 19, God buries your sin. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You know that the oceans of our planet contain 140 million square miles of water. That's 71% of the space around our planet is not land, it's water. Our surfaces I mean, our, our, the depths of our oceans on average are 2.3 miles deep. The deepest waters, however, are in what are called trenches. The Titanic was found a number of years ago, and you maybe have seen pictures of it. It was 13,000 feet down. That was two and a half miles. But that's just average. But in the Mariana Trench, which itself is 1,580 miles long... The depth of it is, on average, 4.3 miles. But there are places in the Mariana Trench that very few people or anyone has ever seen what's down there. It is almost seven miles deep. Mount Everest is 29,000 feet tall. The Mariana Trench at its deepest place is a mile and a half deeper than Everest is tall. Jacques Picard on January 23rd, 1960, was in a, what was, he took down a submergible. It's a very small submarine that's made to withstand pressure. 
It was filled with cameras, and they saw unbelievable. They saw creatures that no one has ever seen before. They were rubbed by, in fact, a creature went by the little submarine that was so big, they couldn't see. It was so dark, they still to this day don't know what it was. He got down to 400 feet, 400 feet from the bottom of the ocean, over six and a half miles deep. And I read his journal, and you know what he said? He said all these things he saw, but you know what wasn't listed? Our sins. Because God has taken them and cast them into the depths of the sea. One country preacher said, after reading this text, that God put your sins in the depths of the sea, and after he was done, he posted a no fishing sign on the shore. (laughs) And that's what our God has done. See, you're not going to find them. They're deeper than the deepest sea. They're as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says. So has far he's removed our transgressions from us. Cast your sins in the deepest sea. Again, if you're Jewish and you hear that, you would immediately think of the story of what? The Red Sea crossing. Song of Moses, which is a song of victory, recorded for us in Exodus 15 and verse 4. Here's what it says. Pharaoh's chariots and his host... He is cast into the sea, it says. And they sunk down in the depths like a stone. See, here's what God says. You know what victory is? Victory over your sins is like my victory over Egypt and Pharaoh and his army and his chariots. They tried to go through on dry ground, but they weren't my people. And I didn't forgive them. They weren't my people. But my people, I preserved them. And you know what I did with their enemies? They sunk into the depths of the Red Sea. And here's what the verse says, and you shall see their face no more forever. That's what God has done with your sin and mine. Jerry Bridges writes about the word cast, which means to hurl or throw. He said, can I tell you, saints of God, he says, God did not just allow your sins to fall overboard and silently drift down. He goes on to say this, there has been no submarine that has ever been made that can submerge itself to the depth of where you can find the sins that God has buried. It's in the depths of the deepest sea. That's what God has done with your sins. And if you have repented and you know him, can I tell you, that's what he has done with your sins. He has pardoned them. Your guilt has been removed. You don't have to bear the weight of them anymore. God says, not only have I pardoned them, he says, but I have taken them and defeated them. I have conquered them, and I have shared that victory with you. And now I want you to know, you know how far I've removed them from you? I have taken them and put them in the depths of the sea where you'll never see them ever again. So the little kid song. I sang when I was a kid, literally when I was about eight. You ask me why I'm happy. Would you like to be happy again? Not anxious, fearful, depressed? You ask me why I'm happy, I'll just tell you why. Because my sins are gone. And when I meet the scoffers who ask me where they are, I say, my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood on the cross of Calvary, as far removed as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, 
That's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. Are yours? Are your sins gone? Or are they right in front of your face? If you don't know Jesus, if you've never recognized that he died on the cross and rose again so that your sins could be gone, you can come today and put your faith and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. If you are a Christian this morning, and that's mainly who I'm talking to. And listen, can I tell you this this morning? If you truly know him and you're repentant, your sins are gone. Not because he doesn't care, not because God doesn't see them, but because he delights in forgiving them. And if you would surrender your life this morning and every morning, God says, you know what I'll do? I'll do with your sins what I did with theirs. And I'll remember them no more. That's our incomparable forgiving God. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, perhaps this morning the Master, the Lord Jesus, brought you here because he wants to forgive your sins. Can I tell you this? Not because he has to. He delights in it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He died and had joy so that you could have it again. If you never come to the place where you surrender your life and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. My only hope is what you did for me. It's not my religiosity. It's not my good works. It's not my self-righteousness. I have none. My problem is inside and it's killing me forever. But I want to come to the cross this morning and I want like pilgrim, I want Christian, like I want my burden to be loosened and I don't want to ever see it again. That can only happen at the cross. And the incomparable God is the only one who can do it. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you say this morning, Pastor Walker, please, here's my hand, pray for me, I need to come to the cross so Jesus can bear my burden and I can know the forgiveness that only he can offer. Would you pray? Here's, your hand. Here's my hand. Pray for me. Would you do that? Just slip it up this morning and put it back down and I'll pray for you in a moment as we close. Anyone like that? Anyone? Perhaps you're here this morning as a child of God, but every day or thereabouts, doubts, questions, Burdens, guilt, it's crushing. Repent. If you do, there's no one like our God. He's a pardoning God. He pardons, he defeats, he buries. That's what he wants to do with your sin. He wants you to live in the victory that he's given to you. If you know him, it ought to move you. And say, Pastor Walker, here's my hand as a Christian this morning. I need to live out that victory that he's given me. And remember what that forgiveness that he has done for me really means in my life so I can live differently accordingly. Would you lift your hand and I'll pray for you this morning as well when I close. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? Father, There is no God like you. 
Jacob said, we're not worthy of the least of your mercies, not even the least of them, but you've lavished them on us, lavished in Christ. Far, far more than we deserve. Blessed be your name. And I pray, my Father, that this morning these ones who have raised their hand might find the joy and the peace as child of God, as children of God, knowing that their sins are gone. And we'll praise you for that in Jesus' matchless name and grace. Amen.